Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash the Book of Mormon. Think about your closest friends. Do any of them have distinctive words or phrases that let you know, oh, that's this person who's talking? For example, in college, I had a roommate named Joseph, and he would always use the word sour to describe people or things. So if he had said, oh, that person is so sour, that would be a a negative thing. And I would know that it was Joseph talking. Or another roommate, Chris, he would often use the phrase, what the rock? I'm not even exactly sure what that phrase means, but if I heard that phrase, I knew for sure it was Chris talking. It's interesting that there's distinctive ways that each one of us can be identified. My grandfather was a statistician in a branch of statistics known as stylometry, or more commonly, word prints. He would take what people wrote and would analyze their writings to see if he could figure out who was writing a specific block of text based on some of their unique writing features. And it was interesting that he was in fact able to do this. Every one of us have a unique fingerprint. We also have a unique word print, distinctive ways of speaking, words and phrases that we use. And I was fascinated when my grandfather told me that his research was part of an FBI investigation. You may have heard of the Unabomber. He was a terrorist in the 80s and 90s. And in the 1990s, he wrote a long essay that was published in the newspaper. And the FBI contacted my grandfather and wanted him to run a word print study comparing the Unabomber's words with those of some possible suspects. Well, as my grandfather was doing these analyses, actually, the Unabomber's brother read the article, recognized his brother's style of speech, contacted the FBI, and that led to his being arrested. So the words that we use really are distinctive. Now, I thought it was really cool when I found out that my grandfather was doing research with the FBI, but I realized it was even cooler when I learned more about his research with the Book of Mormon. You see, some people have grandfathers who take them fishing. My grandfather didn't take me fishing. He showed me awesome charts about his research. And in his research, he analyzed the word prints of Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Mormon, Nephi, Alma, and he was trying to determine whether it was possible that Joseph Smith had written the Book of Mormon. At the conclusion of his research, he determined that it was statistically indefensible to say that Joseph Smith was the author of the Book of Mormon. In other words, Joseph Smith's word print was very different from the word prints of the Book of Mormon authors. Now, I definitely wouldn't base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on this, but I thought it was awesome. And so, Many years later, I decided to pick up a thread of my grandfather's research. Working with some of my colleagues, we developed a copy of the Book of Mormon that split apart the text of the Book of Mormon by the person who was speaking. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried this before. If you're looking for a new approach to your Book of Mormon studies, this is really interesting. You just go along the text of the Book of Mormon, and when there's a change in speaker, you notate it. So, for example, at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, it's really easy to tell who's speaking. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, and then Nephi continues as the speaker until verse 12. And you can see the speaker change is very easy to identify. As Lehi read, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord, and he, Lehi, read saying, insert quotes, woe, woe unto Jerusalem. 
So as we went through the text of the Book of Mormon, we saw that most of the time it was pretty straightforward to tell who was speaking at any given moment, although sometimes it was a little more complicated. For example, at one point, Jacob quotes Zenos, who's quoting the Lord, who speaks in the voice of the master of the vineyard. So it does take effort to keep track of who's speaking. Overall, we learned that the person who is speaking in the Book of Mormon changes more than 1,700 times. Altogether, there are about 150 different speakers in the Book of Mormon, everyone from Aaron to the Zoramites. And you might be wondering, who are the top speakers in the Book of Mormon? Well, the top five speakers are Mormon, who accounts for 36% of the text in the Book of Mormon, Nephi, who accounts for 10% of the text. It might surprise you that coming in third is Alma the Younger, because Mormon, as he's abridging the records, he often will quote extensively from Alma in the first person. Next is Moroni, the son of Mormon, and the fifth most common speaker in the Book of Mormon is Jesus Christ. So we took the text of the Book of Mormon that we had split apart by speaker and we put it into the database Word Cruncher. What this allows you to do is take any word or phrase like the word baptize. So I type in the word baptize and then instead of seeing where it appears in the Book of Mormon, I can see who says the word. It's a really interesting way of searching the scriptures. Now I know what you're thinking to yourself, Brother Hilton, I wish I could get my own free copy of this database. Wish granted. You can download the database and see a tutorial of how to use it at johnhiltonii.com slash voices in the Book of Mormon. Now, why am I bringing this up right now? It's because today we're in 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10, and for the first time we're introduced to the prophet Jacob speaking in the first person. Jacob is one of our major speakers in the Book of Mormon. He accounts for 3% of the text. He speaks in 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10, and then again in the book of Jacob. So notice 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 1. The heading states, The words of Jacob, the brother of Nephi, which he spake unto the people of Nephi. Insert quotes. Behold, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, having been called of God. So now we see a new speaker. And that means we might reasonably ask ourselves, does Jacob have a unique or a distinctive voice from Nephi? Because just like my roommates in college, you would expect different individuals to have distinctive voices. Jacob, in fact, does have a unique voice, and it really stands out. For example, in 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 3, he says, I am desirous for the welfare of your souls, yea, mine anxiety is great for you. Now notice that in his own book, Jacob chapter 2, verse 3, Jacob says, I this day am weighed down with much more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls as I have hitherto been. Can you see how Jacob has this consistent way of starting his message, speaking of his desire for their welfare, his anxiety? In fact, the word anxiety appears eight times in the Book of Mormon, and half of those references are from Jacob. Here's another example. The phrase beloved brethren appears 72 times in the Book of Mormon, and nobody uses it more than Jacob. Jacob is the first individual to use this phrase. Even though he only accounts for 3% of the total text of the Book of Mormon, he accounts for more than 25% of the total occurrences of the phrase 
beloved brethren. It's just a trademark Jacob phrase. There's one more that I want to share, and it's really cool. I can't take credit for it. It was discovered by my son, Joseph, when he was 11 years old. If you remember, back in 2018, President Russell M. Nelson invited members of the church to read through the Book of Mormon and identifying references to Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, Joseph doesn't have a father who takes him fishing very often, but his dad does love spreadsheets. And so Joseph created a spreadsheet to help him keep track of all of the different references to Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon. The spreadsheet was gigantic. Every time he found a different title of the Savior, he included it on the spreadsheet and he would keep track by chapter of how many references there were to Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon. As he was showing me the spreadsheet for 2 Nephi, I noticed something interesting. 2 Nephi chapters 3, 4, and 5 had a very different pattern than 2 Nephi chapters 9 and 10 in how the words God and Lord were used. Now, I don't know about you, but I would kind of think of God and Lord as almost interchangeable terms. But it turns out that throughout his writings, Nephi uses the word God more than Lord, and Jacob uses the word Lord twice as often as he uses the word God. And what's fascinating is that Jacob's pattern of speaking, using the word Lord more than God, that's what appears in 2 Nephi 9 and 10 when Jacob is the speaker, as well as in the book of Jacob. So in all the chapters surrounding it, when Nephi is speaking, 2 Nephi 3, 4, 5, 11, it's God more than Lord. But in 9 and 10, when Jacob's speaking, it's Lord more than God. Again, I wouldn't base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on this, but the idea that Joseph Smith, as a 23-year-old translating the Book of Mormon, says, oh, you know, I'm going to create a unique character named Jacob, and he's going to use the word Lord more than God, and he's going to keep track of that. That's impossible to believe. As we'll see throughout the rest of this masterclass, there are many distinctive ways that different Book of Mormon authors speak. And even at the end of our class today, we'll see a little bit more of Jacob's unique voice. In 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 4, Jacob tells us that he didn't choose the topic that he'll be addressing us on today. He says, I will read you the words of Isaiah, and they are the words my brother has desired that I should speak unto you. So what were the words that Jacob was assigned to speak? He says, now these are the words. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. And they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon thy shoulders. Now, alert readers are going to think to themselves, wait a minute, haven't I already heard this? And in fact, these are the exact words of Isaiah that Nephi quoted back in Isaiah chapter 49. And at the end of 2 Nephi chapter 6, Jacob continues with Isaiah, again, picking up exactly where Nephi had left off in chapter 49. For shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible delivered. Something really interesting is happening here. Nephi had quoted Isaiah chapter 48 and chapter 49, and then he assigned Jacob to literally pick up right where Nephi had left off in 49. And then Jacob is going to go on in 2 Nephi 7 to quote Isaiah 50. And in 2 Nephi 8, he'll quote Isaiah chapter 51. 
Now soon, Nephi will quote a large block of scripture from Isaiah. But if we don't count that block of Isaiah, when's the next time that Isaiah will appear in the Book of Mormon? It's when the priests of King Noah ask a question about Isaiah chapter 52. Abinadi then responds by quoting Isaiah chapter 53. And then we don't hear much of Isaiah again in the Book of Mormon until the Savior himself comes and he quotes, can you guess? Isaiah chapter 54. This is a fascinating pattern. We often just talk about the Isaiah chapters as though they're randomly appearing in the Book of Mormon, but there's a careful structure of how Isaiah chapters 48 through 54 appear in the Book of Mormon. And if you're interested in diving more deeply into this structure, I learned about it from my colleague, Dr. Joseph Spencer, and I've linked to some of his resources on the course website. Picking up where Nephi had left off, Jacob quotes Isaiah as saying, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand unto the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people. Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens their nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces towards the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Now, if you remember in our previous class where we focused on Isaiah back in 1 Nephi chapter 16 through 22, we talked about the Isaiah map. Do you think that Jacob knows about the Isaiah map? Is he going to mention countries like Babylon and Persia? Absolutely. If we keep reading in 2 Nephi chapter 6, he says, The Lord has shown me that those who were at Jerusalem from whence we came have been slain and carried away captive. By Babylon. Nevertheless, the Lord has shown unto me that they should return again. This is a clear reference to Persia freeing the Jews from Babylonian captivity. Jacob goes on to talk about how in the latter days there will again be deliverance for those who are oppressed. Notice how he takes some of the same words Isaiah used and puts them into his own prophecy. Jacob says, In the latter days, the Lord God will fulfill his covenants, which he has made unto his children. Wherefore, they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their feet. And the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed. For the people of the Lord are they who wait for him. In other words, in the latter days, just like the Jews were delivered from Babylonian captivity, the covenant people of the Lord will be delivered by Jesus Christ against all of those who oppose the Savior and his work. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time today in 2 Nephi chapters 7 and 8, practicing our skills with understanding Isaiah. So let's go to 2 Nephi chapter 7, which is like Isaiah chapter 50. And if you remember from the Isaiah map, this tells us that I should be reading this chapter with the lens of a message of hope and restoration for Jews in exile. Let's see if we can see that theme in the first few verses. Thus saith the Lord, Have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away, or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, 
there was none to answer. Can you see how this is a message of hope? In essence, the Lord is saying, hey, I didn't leave you. You left me. That's a hopeful message because if the Lord left me, then it's like, oh no, what can I do? But the Lord's saying, no, 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 I'm still here. You've left me. All you need to do is come back. Continuing, we read, O house of Israel, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make their rivers a wilderness and their fish to stink because the waters are dried up. They die because of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Now, we might read that and think, oh, this sounds kind of discouraging. Fish are dying. The sky is dark. But remember, this is a message of hope. It's the Lord's way of saying, I am all powerful. I control the elements. Don't worry, Jews in captivity. I can help you as well. Continuing in verse 7, we read, The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. The Lord is near, and he justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near me, and I will smite him with the strength of my mouth. For the Lord God will help me, and all they who shall condemn me Behold, all they shall wax old as a garment, and the moth shall eat them up. If you remember, at one point in time, we talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, looking at a passage of Scripture with the lens of, what does this teach me about God? These verses are telling us God is all-powerful. He is in control. And even though it may seem like things aren't going well for me, God can do anything. He is the sovereign king. Now, there's more that we could say from chapter 7, but I'm going to save some of chapter 7 for another day. Let's turn now to 2 Nephi chapter 8, which is like Isaiah chapter 51. In verse 3, we read, For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Can you see how this is a message of hope? The waste places, Jerusalem, which is now desolate, it's going to be restored. In verse 7, the Lord says, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart I have written my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Keep in mind that phrase, fear ye not the reproach of men. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But for now, let's continue in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Now, we might stumble on this phrase and wonder, what's all this talk about dragons and who is Rahab? Remember that Isaiah often speaks in doubles. So if we keep reading, we might find some clues. Art thou not he who hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. The idea that the depths of the sea were parted so that the ransomed could walk through, this is a clear reference to the Israelites in Egypt. In other words, the Lord's saying, just like I helped you get out of Egypt, 
I'm going to help you get out of Babylonian captivity. That gives us a clue. And if we dig a little deeper, we can see that there are references to Rahab and dragons that connect to Egypt as well. The Lord continues, I am he, yea, I am he that comforteth you. Now, we might pause for a moment and say, okay, well, we're getting all of these messages of hope, all of these allusions to Babylonian captivity. Why do we need so many messages of hope? Well, I would ask, why do we need so many love songs? Of course, we want all the love songs we can get. And if you were a Jewish person living in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, you would want all of the messages of hope you could possibly get as well. The Lord continues, Behold, who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of man who shall die and of the son of man who shall be made like unto grass and forgettest the Lord thy maker that has stretched forth the heavens. This takes us back to the idea of being afraid of what others think. The Lord is saying, why are you afraid of other humans and forgetting me, the Lord? If we continue, he says, you have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? It's like the Lord is saying, why are you worried about what your fellow mortals would do or think? Focus more on me. So I think we could pause and maybe liken this passage to our own lives. Do you or I ever look sideways? We're more worried about what others think than looking upward and wondering about what God thinks. There are several interesting experiments in this area. One of my favorites is known as the ASH experiment. The experiment was really about group conformity, but participants were told that it was about line length. They would be shown a line and then three additional lines and were asked to match which lines had the same length. It was very obvious what the right answer was, but there were actors in the room who had been told to match the wrong lines. And so the experiment was to see if someone would give what was obviously an incorrect answer just to conform to everyone else in the group. There's some really fun videos of the ASH experiment on YouTube, and I've linked to some of them on the course website. Overall, at least three out of four participants gave a wrong answer at least once. Ash stated that intelligent, well-meaning young people are willing to call white black is a matter of concern. How about for us today? Do we face any peer pressure? Just like everyone else, I struggle sometimes with looking sideways. But what I have to remind myself is that ultimately what really matters is God's opinion. He is the one that I am trying to please, not anyone else. Continuing in verse 22, we read one of my favorite passages from Isaiah. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord and thy God pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee. So again, can you see how this is a message of hope? Jews, you've been in Babylonian captivity. You've been drinking this terrible cup. I'm going to take the cup out of your hand and I'm going to put it into the hands of those who are afflicting you. I'm going to give that cup to Babylon, symbolizing Persia coming to destroy Babylon. Continuing, the Lord says that the Babylonians have said to the Jews, bow down that we may go over and thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
for henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now, for many years, I was puzzled by that phrase, arise, sit down. It kind of sounded like a game of Simon Says, like, stand up, sit down. Why did I stand up? But remember the body posture back from the previous verse. The Jews were laying on the ground. The Babylonians were stomping on them. So we're starting out from a laying in the dust position. And the Lord says, arise, shake off the dust, sit down in the royal place where you belong. This is a powerful message of hope for you and me. Do we ever feel like we are trampled on the dust, that we have no hope, everything is lost? The Lord says, arise, sit down. I have a royal place prepared for you. Now, as we turn to 2 Nephi chapters 9 and 10, we're going to hear Jacob teaching and expounding on the words of Isaiah. And he'll do this in a couple of different ways. One of those relates to scatterings and gatherings. Jacob says, just as the Jews were in exile, the tribes of Israel were scattered. Later Jews will be scattered and gathered. The descendants of Lehi's people will be scattered and gathered. One overarching way that I think Jacob applies these teachings from Isaiah is to take the storyline of Jews in Babylonian captivity being rescued by Persia, and he says, spiritually speaking, this is about all of us. We are in captivity to death and hell, and because of Jesus Christ, we'll be delivered. So the storyline, historically speaking, that we've been talking about is a type of our spiritual salvation. Here's just one verse that I think really encapsulates this. Oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy One of Israel, for he delivereth his saints from that awful monster, the devil, and death, and hell, and that lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. Now, there's a lot to unpack from this verse, and let's do it in a couple of ways. First, as you might have suspected, there's some phrases in here that signal Jacob's voice. The phrase fire and brimstone occurs 10 times in the Book of Mormon. Six of those are from Jacob. The phrase endless torment appears six times in the Book of Mormon. Three of those from Jacob. The word awful appears 49 times in the Book of Mormon. 27% of those are from Jacob. He talks about the awful state of the wicked, the awfulness of yielding to the enticings of the devil the awful consequences of every kind of sin. He'll also use the phrase awful monster. He's the only person in the Book of Mormon to do this. And he defines the awful monster as death and hell. Jacob also likes to use the word hell. 17% of the occurrences of hell in the Book of Mormon are in Jacob's voice. Now, most of us don't like to talk about death endless torment, fire and brimstone, and hell. But it's a message that Jacob gave. I think Jacob wanted us to really understand our awful state. Jews who were in Babylonian captivity, they knew that things were bad. But sometimes in our lives, we can be lulled away by Satan's temptations. We think, oh, eat, drink, and be merry. Oh, things aren't so bad. The devil pacifies us a little bit. But if we step back and realize, wait, I am in captivity. Sin and death will consign me to an endless torment that helps me realize how much I need a Savior. 
Jesus Christ. So let's go back to 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 19, where Jacob talks about the awful monster and fire and brimstone and endless torment. I think what's powerful is in the first part of that verse, he says, Oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy One of Israel, for he delivereth his saints. Just like the Jews in captivity were delivered, you and I can be delivered through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Jacob refers to this as Christ's infinite atonement. And he says, by the power of the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel, we can be clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness. As I was reading 2 Nephi chapter 9 in preparation for this class today, I realized that we could probably have a masterclass just devoted to 2 Nephi chapter 9. But for now, let me just share one of my favorite verses from this chapter. In verse 21, Jacob says, Jesus Christ cometh into the world, that he may save all people, if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all people, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, who belong to the family of Adam. Recently, I heard from Catherine, a member of our master class, who shared a poignant experience from her life of how she's feeling Christ's atonement help her with the challenges she faces. I recently returned home from serving a full-time mission in Guatemala, and I kind of expected that when I got home, my plan would just kind of like fall into place and things would work out the way I kind of expected. And that wasn't really the case. I was recently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and it's been really kind of a struggle for me to accept what my life is going to look like moving forward. But I've learned that Christ's atonement doesn't just apply to me in an emotional or spiritual sense. Of course it does, but it also applies to me in a physical sense. That Christ really suffered my pain. He understands what I feel, and he understands how to help me through my, my most difficult days. That he can carry me when it's hard. Not just spiritually, not just emotionally. But physically, he can carry me through my difficulties and through my trials. Thank you, Catherine, for sharing that powerful experience. I love how Jacob concludes. He says, It is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. Wherefore, may God raise you from death by the power of the resurrection, and also from everlasting death by the power of the atonement, that ye may be received into the eternal kingdom of God that ye may praise him through grace divine. Truly it is Jesus Christ who comforts us. He is the one who will deliver us. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. We hope to see you there.